Dusty Springfield there, the look of love. And we do have Ruth Catarellos on the line. Ruth, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. It's a beautiful track from Dusty Springfield. Of course, Dusty is one of the artists that you and the superb, the sublime Maud Davey will be covering as part of Goddesses of Jazz, which is happening on the 2nd of May at Chapel Off Chapel. Tell us about the backstory about how you and Maud got together for this production. Um, look... We we worked together at the Paris Cat about maybe five or six years ago and did a um, a jazz show then and it went down really really well and we've worked periodically together at you know done a few gigs at Hairs and Hyenas so um, and then we worked at the Paris Cat last year at the beginning of two thousand and twenty before you know um, all hell like broke loose in. In the world, um, we did a show, so we just kind of decided we'd bring it back for midsummer, essentially. I loved your Facebook post of you and Maud in the car singing "God Bless the Child" <laughs> by Billie Holiday. Of course, Billie's one of the artists that you're covering. Your That's voices right. go, Absolutely. your voices go so well together. Do you remember that moment when you first discovered uh, that incredible connection with your voices? Yeah, look, and it would have been some time ago. Um, we get along really well too. Like it's really easy to, you know, we work really well on stage together. So, you know, a lot of our audience members um, comment on that. And you know, our styles are slightly different, but we just we just kind of gel, and it's really it's really easy. And, and as you said, Moi is fantastic. She's great to work with, um, and so it's just it's a really pleasant experience. Of course, uh, Goddesses of Jazz includes the songs of Nina Simone, Judy Garland, Edith Piaf, as well as Billie Holiday and Dusty and, and, and many more. Of the artists that you cover, which one do you feel the most connected to and, and why do you think? Yeah, look, that's a great question. I mean, I guess we, we chose the, the artists, um, you know, they're, they're women who who kind of stand out as jazz greats, clearly, but also just women who, who made, you know, you feel like you could kind of do anything. Um, I suppose for me, you know, I, I love Piaf, Piaf's story um, and, the, you know, the power behind um, this, you know, very small, uh, you know, in stature singer. Um, a lot of the, you know, a lot of these, these women also had really difficult lives. They were kind of stars in times where... Where you know, I mean, I don't know that life you know ever been particularly easy for you know being a female star, but you know that they had strength about them, even if their their world didn't always go um, you know so well. So I think probably for me, in lots of ways, Piaf. Yeah, and and then you know, and then there are the songs that we sing, you know, because because it's not only the artist, but it's also the choice clearly of the material too, the song that we're singing. Yeah, tell us about those songs that you sing. Which which ones from these amazing well, women do you perform? Yeah, so you know, I, from Piaf, I sing um, Autumn Leaves, which I guess is as jazz standard a lot about uh, about loss. Uh, Maud does Edda James. Um, um, guests who I saw today, um, and Dusty's Namakitapa, um, If You Go Away. Um, I do a song from Nora Jones, which is, you know, Don't Know Why. So, uh, you know, 
a lot of the songs that we've chosen are also about telling stories. So, you know, there's the there's the story, I guess, that's inherent in the song, but it's also the story that we tell about why we've connected to that particular song and that particular artist as well. So you get, you know, you get a fair bit of, of us in the show as well. So storytelling is a really, really strong theme throughout the show. Tell us a bit more about that and tell us some of the stories that you, that you convey. Well, I guess the story, you know, Maud and I are both actors and so, you know, we, we both sing but we are actors and I guess, you know, what actors do essentially is tell stories. So, for example, um, Don't Know Why, I mean, I kind of, that's a, I tell a little bit about, you know, a drunken tale about, you know, the notion of, because, you know, the character or the, the, the singer in that story, if you like, is kind of um, doesn't know why. She's a bit intoxicated, talks about, you know, being a bit drunk. Um, and for whatever reason, she doesn't, she doesn't go. She doesn't turn up where she's supposed to. And I suppose I kind of talk a little bit about, you know, just some of the, the things that you don't when you're drunk. You know, like don't, you know, clearly don't drink and drive, but don't drink and text. Um, you know, so we just we just add little bits of ourselves. So yeah, trying to think of what else. You know, um, PF Autumn Leaves is about the loss of a, of a of a lover, and it's just certainly something that I can connect with. You know, I lost a lover in my in my late twenties, and so you know, every song that we sing has, speaks to you know a part of us, I guess, as well. And, of course, the, the great women whose songs you perform, one of the things I've noticed is they all have themes of grief and loss throughout their lives, don't they? So, obviously, you've got totally. that real empathy with them. Yeah. And I guess it's, you know, when, you, when you're singing, I mean, you know, every song really is a, is a love song, you know. And so, you know, it's either the excitement of love or... You know, sometimes, you know, we do Peggy Lee's Fever, which is, you know, not about loss. It's about desire, I guess, isn't it? About, um, you know, that aspect of love. Um, and so we kind of try and cover a range as well of, um, you know, from kind of lust to, you know, we do Carmel's The Game of Love, um, which is kind of a, a lighter approach. And, and, you know, love is a game. And so, but it's a game that's got kind of ups and downs. So, we kind of cover the whole gamut. To what extent do you find that as you get older, the insights and maturity that comes with age gives you a greater strength when you're interpreting songs and gives you a greater ability to see the, the subtlety and, the, and all the context of the song? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's true. Uh, I mean, I think I sing material, you know, very differently now than I might have 20 years ago. Um and I guess you have the opportunity to get right into the nuances of the story. So, you know, again, you know, the way we might approach an acting job is that, you know, every every line or every, you know, bit has a story to tell or a different moment in time and, you know, the, the character that you, whose song you're singing. And I use the word character because I do see it like that. I see every song a little bit like a monologue. Then you do get involved in that journey and maybe as, one gets older, you have more, um, I don't know, you don't always have more wisdom. I think, you know, some young people have incredible wisdom, but maybe uh, a le- less self-consciousness for me personally, less self-consciousness maybe about the way that I tell the story and an ability to just kind of get into it. 
you really do combine singing and, and acting with, with your performances so well. And I've really noticed that in a lot of your performances, like the monologues, for example, which you've done, that they really require great physical and kind of, you know, mental kind of, you know, intensity and exertion. How do you prepare for your roles? Well, look, I, you know, I, I, have a, I have a process and I'm sure more does too, you know, and a, that, you know, with, as an actor, you have a kind of an acting process and, and I use a similar one in terms of when I'm preparing a song and just kind of going, all right, where's my character at? What, what are they wanting in this moment? What's, what's happening for them? You know, what are the differences in terms of what, you know, are they trying to convey and, and what's, the, what's the story? Like, where do they start? Who are they talking to and where do they end? Um, and so that there is a sense of, um, that there is a sense of story in that. And, you know, look at, you know, I, I mean, we both, you know, we love the work that we do. You know, we, you, you know, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be an actor if you weren't passionate about it. And so, you know, that, that art of storytelling is something that is, um, you know, it, it takes its work, but then when you're in it and you know the story that you're telling, there's something that's incredibly, um, oh, you know, I love it. You know, when you're in that zone and you're able to just get involved in that story and convey whatever it is that you're trying to convey, whether it's joyful and exhilarating or whether it's, you know, distressing um, or, you know, the journey of, you know, something like autumn leaves and sad, um, it's incredibly fulfilling. It really sounds like Goddesses of Jazz, you know, really takes the audience on a riveting kind of emotional journey. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that was certainly some of the feedback that we got last time at, when we when we did the show at the Paris Cat, as people did have a sense of hearing songs in a new way, and you know, and that's always exciting. I have to say, we're also accompanied by an incredible musician in um, Graham Clark, who is also trained as a singer. And, you know, um, what the, you know, he, he supports, so he doesn't just play a piece of music. He absolutely listens to where our story is going and he works to support that. And um, so, you know, even just listening to him play too, you know, there's a lot of emotion in that. And then every time I hear his introduction, I kind of know exactly where I'm going with the story. So, you know, there's something really nice about that kind of combination. Wow. So it sounds like he's got a real wisdom as a, as a storyteller uh, with the way he accompanies you and Maud with your songs. Very, very much so. And he can hear the story. <laughs> he can absolutely hear the story. He knows where he go- he's going. So he will adapt accordingly. Um, he's also been my teacher and mentor for many years. And, you know, as a... As a um, as a teacher, he'll kind of go. You know, he knows exactly when I've drifted off. You know, if I drift off into my head for two seconds and I'm not on story, he's like, ah, no, nah. <laughs> come back. Um, and so, you know, but but it's one absolutely wonderful to have him as a part of it, and you know, to to be able to kind of you know play with Maud is fantastic. And so we do some songs solo, and we do um, and we do some duets as well. We even have a moment. We have a little dance. Fantastic. I love some of the tracks that Maud performs as well. There's an incredible one where she sings. It's a song about a rooster. I'm not sure what it's called, but she's crowing all night, and it's just got <laughs> incredible energy to it. Tell us a bit about yeah, that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I look, and she's not actually doing that one in this show. But yeah, little um, little little red rooster, yeah, is a great um, is a great one. Um, she did that in the last in the the Paris Cat one, um, and you know, Maud's got an amazing energy to whatever she does. You know, she's quite you know, as anybody who who knows her work, you know, she's very compelling um, as a storyteller and got great energy on stage. And she's Definitely. been such a fixture on the on the queer cabaret circuit here in Melbourne for for decades now. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, she's just you know she's a great great human being. Now you recently finished up uh, performing in Mrs. Robinson, a soap cabaret at La Mama, uh, for <laughs> the did. Melbourne Comedy yeah. Festival. What's it been yes. like diving back into performing? And and doing it in quick succession with um with the new show Goddesses of Jazz after being in lockdown for so long. I mean, wow. Yeah, look, I have to say when we opened, um, this was actually Mrs. Robinson was a show that was going to be in the, on at the comedy festival last year, but of course everything got cancelled. So, um, so it was great to be able to get it up at La Mama. Um, but I have to say, opening night. I mean, I, I know the show. Um, and I was looking forward to performing in front of an audience again, but I was also a little bit nervous, you know, first time back, uh, you know, with, you know, after a year. Um, but look, the, the show was really well received. Um, I played a character that I is not my usual kind of character, um, a very straight uh, kind of lusting, you know, mother character. So, you know, lots of... Um, it was a pretty out there show written by the amazing Ella Filler, but you know, great fun, very fast moving. So you know, kind of once you start, you just kind of go, go, go. Um, so look, I, I had a ball, um, but but really looking forward to you know to um, Goddess Jazz as well, and just very different, you know, <laughs> very very different beast. Absolutely. Well, it's a wonderful show you've got planned for, for Melbourne audiences on Sunday, the 2nd of May at Chapel Off Chapel. Uh, That's can right. Still and we've got tickets. a matinee too. Oh, yeah, you do? Absolutely. So we've, got, we've got two shows. So we're doing one at four and then one at seven. And um, people can book cha- um, tickets through either Midsummer or the Chapel Off Chapel side. And at the moment, we have got a promo code. If anybody wants to use the word pride, um, that that will give them a discount as well. Wonderful. Ruth Catarellos, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank I really you. appreciate it. Thank you so much, James. Um, thanks very much for having me on. And, yeah, yeah, wonderful. Thank you. My pleasure. Cheers. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. You too. Bye. With Catarellos there, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, and here's Barbara Streisand and Judy Garland. Get your trouble, happy day. Come on, get happy. I hear again a change. All our cares above are clear. Shout hallelujah. So let's sing the song. Come on, get happy. Cheer again. Happy days are here again. Get happy about it 
across the river Soon your cares will all be gone There'll be no more From now on From now on Forget the past And just get happy I hear again You better change Joined by Dr. Noah Reisman, who is the co-author of the book Pride in Defence. Uh, he wrote the book with Shirlene Robinson, explores the history of LGBTI people in Australia's Defence Force. Noah, welcome to 3CR. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back. It's a great pleasure. Tell us about the incredible journey that you and Shirlene experienced interviewing 140 people for the book. Oof, where do I even start? Look, it was, it was absolutely remarkable meeting all these amazing people who've served in the Defence Force, past and present. Every single person we interviewed had a story to tell, and, you know, some were really positive stories. Some were happy stories of people who had wonderful careers, who, you know, if they were more recently serving, then they've been able to be open about their sexuality or gender identity and, and not really run into many problems. Some of these people were very long-time serving officers who, you know, for decades successfully were able to, to hide their sexuality and were never kicked out. But then we also had some people we encountered who had these awful, to be frank, um, traumatic stories of being um, during the period when you could be kicked out for being gay, lesbian, or transgender, of you know being called in by military police, hounded for hours on end, interrogated, um, really horrible traumatic situations, you know, leading to mental health problems, being kicked out, um, thoughts of suicide, at least a few did even attempt suicide, um, but amazing people who you know even those people who had these traumatic experiences years later have, have picked themselves up and most are doing pretty well for themselves now. It sounds like you really built the interviewee's trust. How did you do that? That's a good question. Um, obviously, when they met Shirlene and me, they they could see we were good people. I, don't, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one you say that, but it, it was, look, part of it I think was word of mouth and networking that early on we were, we were building important partnerships with important people, um, important veterans, um, DEFCLIS, which is the Defense LGBTI Information Service, which represents currently and, and also has some formerly serving members. We, we liaised with them very early on in this project and they very much came on board. So they were able to vouch for us and a lot of the people we interviewed were sort of snowballed friends of people we previously interviewed. So, you know, by building that trust and then seeing this project grow and grow and they could see we'd been doing this for a while, um, yeah, we, we, when you ask that question, I don't think I've ever been asked that before, but it's a really good one because clearly 
we were being respectful to people, being respectful to their stories, and word spread, and we're very grateful that people were willing to, to give us the time and share their life stories. And I guess some of those stories had been very tightly held and perhaps hadn't been shared before to anyone. It's it's amazing you say that. It's quite true. So a few people we interviewed who were kicked out back in, say, the 1980s or even the early 90s told us that they may have told their closest of friends, their partners, but nobody else. I can think of at least one person we interviewed who he wasn't kicked out of the Navy and the Air Force, but he suffered some serious homophobic abuse, um, including, I would say, an attempt on his life. He never told anyone about this anyone, including his now husband, until he heard about our project and he and I spoke on the phone. Then he told his husband and then he did the interview with me and he's really open about it now and quite active in in wanting to lobby for for justice. At least one other person I can think of, um, and I'll say his name because he's, he's become a more public figure recently, Danny Liversidge. He was kicked out of the Air Force for being gay in 1991, didn't tell anyone why he left the Air Force, kept it a secret until decades later, and he told me this in the interview, it was when Dan Andrews gave the public apology for Victoria's past um, laws and persecution of, of gay men that he posted this incredibly emotional post on Facebook. This would have been 2016, I think, um, an incredibly emotional post on Facebook about what happened with him in the Air Force. And since then, he's been much more open about what happened to him. And all these people, his family, his friends, people who've known him for decades were like, I can't believe you've never told us this. That must have been awful what you went through. So yeah, quite a few people, we were some of the first people they told. And, and they felt, we're really proud of ourselves, Shirlene and me, that like a lot of these people felt really empowered having told us about this and realizing that they weren't alone, realizing this wasn't something that just happened to them. This was something structural, endemic, that was embedded and going on across the Australian Defense Force, that it wasn't about them. It wasn't them that was the problem. It was a policy that the Defense Force was enacting. How far back did you go? Did you talk to people that served in Vietnam? Did you go back further? So when we set up this project, we framed it to be post-World War II. That said, I did wind up interviewing one World War II veteran because the opportunity arose and you know we wanted to record that story while he was still alive, and, and he has since passed. But most of the interviews were people who served from the 50s onwards till today, including a few people who did serve in Vietnam. And I imagine people that served in the 50s and in the 60s, it would have been incredibly traumatic if they were you know, discharged or just the stress of having to repress everything. I mean, it must have been awful in the 80s and 90s, but back then it must have been so hard, you know, pre-law reform, pre-decriminalization. You know, it's funny you say that. That's what we thought we were going to find. For men, now I'll come to women in a moment, it was quite the opposite for men. So in the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of there was a lot of um, discretion and a lot of blind eyes turned to homosexuality amongst men in the defense force. So what we found was a lot of the men we interviewed, well, a lot of the men we interviewed actually didn't realize they were gay or bisexual while they were serving. Um, I think, again, because of the way society stigmatized and there were silences and it wasn't talked about, a lot of these men didn't realize till later in life, so even after they left the defense force, that they were gay. And, and that's an important thing we talk about in the book as well. But even for those men who did realize, it was often, if you were being discreet, 
a blind eye was turned. You could get away with it. And it was actually later, from 1974 onwards, that the ADF was really going out of its way to hunt gay and lesbian people, that then it became much more challenging for gay men in the Defense Force. Now, the reason I say that different from women is, and Shirlene did much more research on the, the early period of women, but very much what she found, and it came up in my interviews as well, is women were always being targeted. Women were always being targeted, which is especially interesting because the policies in place in the 1950s and 60s were really focused on men, yet it was women that they were going after. And the reason was, at that time, if you were a married woman, you couldn't serve. Um, If you got pregnant, you had to leave. So it was meant to be a service for just single women. But then it's like, okay, well, wait, but what kind of woman wants to serve then? Oh, lesbians. Well, we can't have them either. So it's interesting that during that early period, for women, absolutely what you say holds up. But for men, it was, it was more the 70s and 80s that was more challenging. So there was a real culture that was rife of misogyny going way back in the Australian Defence Force. Oh, well, that's a whole other project, but short answer, yes. <laughs> You mentioned 1974, where the military was like aggressively, you know, hunting, hunting out queer folks. Why then? What happened? Mm. What was all that about? What was the turning yep. point? What was the trigger? So, yep, yep. In 1973, there were two lesbians who were dismissed from the Women's Royal Australian Air Force who um, got a little bit of media attention. One of them, there was a little story written up in the gay and lesbian news, newsletter Camp Inc. And then the mainstream press briefly picked up on this. And um, one of them wound up on, uh, was it the Mike, not Mike Willisy, what's his name? Uh, God, I'm drawing a blank. Mike Walsh. One of the daytime. Mike Walsh, thank you, yes. Um, the Mike Walsh show. Um, so there was a little bit of publicity, and then they wrote to, one of these women wrote to the defense minister complaining. Now, this was the era of the Whitlam government, which, in general, supposedly, for the most part, was more tolerant to homosexuality. So the defense minister wrote to the services and said that the services needed to come up with a consistent policy that would be um, more respectful and sympathetic. So in 1974, they came up with the first consistent tri-service policy on how to deal with gay and lesbian people in the defense force. They said that it would be, that they would be treated with, quote, sympathy and discretion. But as the interviews that we did with people who were investigated from then until the ban was lifted was, they were very rarely treated with sympathy or discretion. But that was when you had this consistent policy, this consistent approach that was brought in in 1974. And that policy, you know, there were a few adjustments here and there over the years, but for the most part, that policy was in place with the same practices until the end of 1992. And tell us about some of the experiences of trans folks that you are you were shared that that you uncovered. Yep. So um, that's another important history that trans people have been serving in the defense force for as long as you know forever as well. Um, it a lot of the the trans history is sort of earlier were harder for us to find um, because we didn't have any interview participants participants who served in that earlier period, except for uh, two people who served circa 1980. Um, But we did find sort of fragments of trans voices in some of the sort of old trans newsletters um, in magazines like put out by Seahorse and other similar trans organizations. There might be a a person who was a member of Seahorse who told a story about when they served in the Defense Force. In the period before 2000, there wasn't a formal ban on trans service, but they weren't allowed to serve either. And because there wasn't a formal ban, when trans people were caught, 
usually would be a person who was caught dressing and clothing associated not with their sex assigned at birth, or occasionally a trans person might have outed themselves, um, you know, come forward. And how they were treated, it was sort of, again, it was inconsistent because there wasn't a clear policy. Sometimes they went through the same um, guidelines, the same practices as if they were gay or lesbian. Sometimes they were able to get a medical discharge. Sometimes they were allowed to stay. We know of at least one person who was an officer, came out as trans, and they were sort of tolerated to stay for two more years as long as they they behaved themselves and weren't caught dressing, and then they were allowed to leave quietly. So before 2000, it was very inconsistent, but that said, they weren't supposed to be in the services. In the year 2000, the Defense Force explicitly adopted a policy that banned trans people um, and, and sort of put it in writing, made it more formal, said that if a person was wanted to transition, they had to leave the Defense Force. That ban was not lifted until 2010, um, thanks to the advocacy and activism of uh, some trans people who were being kicked out of the Defense Force, um, especially Bridget Clinch who, from the Army, who, who was being kicked out, um, and also Amy Hamblin from the Air Force. So they managed to challenge that in the Human Rights... Well, Bridget challenged it, sorry, in the Human Rights Commission, um, put pressure on the ADF, and they lifted the trans ban in 2010. Since then, the experiences of trans people have sort of gradually gotten better. In the early years, when the ban was lifted, there was nothing to replace it, so it was still sort of ad hoc, inconsistent, some trans people having better experiences than others. Um, and you still get it that it's patchy today, but that said, credit where credit's due, there's more consistency and, and more acceptance now than there was. But I think trans is still behind where they are on LGB. Did people talk much about why they joined the Australian Defence Forces in the first place when homophobia and transphobia and sexism was so rife? Yeah, like that was another one of those things that we sort of wondered. And the the look, everyone had their own individual reasons to serve, but very rarely did that even factor into their decisions. Um, I think you know, for some people, it was an economic opportunity. It was a job. For some people, it was an education opportunity. For some people, especially if they were serving in the 60s or early 70s, it was national service. They didn't have a choice. Um, for some people, it was a, um, you know, a family tradition. For trans people, one thing that studies from the United States as early as the 1980s have found is that trans people have often been disproportionately attracted to defense forces. So for trans women who haven't transitioned, so are still presenting as male and, you know, often trying to, to, to repress or deny their authentic gender, their affirmed gender, um, they were often have been attracted to defense forces as this sort of hyper-masculine environment, so a place where they can try and prove their masculinity. But of course, that doesn't work. And for trans men who haven't gone through transition, it's a place where as someone who's still expressing or appears to be female, even if their they're, um, affirmed gender is male, can exhibit masculine qualities and it's sort of a bit more accepted. So trans people have actually throughout history been disproportionately attracted to defense forces. But it is interesting this question you raised, despite the homophobia, despite the transphobia, despite the policies. In when we did ask this, people was like, it didn't really factor in, which I found intriguing. Absolutely. Um, no, there's been a lot of PR done by the Defence Force here in Australia about, you know, how, how effective they've been at integrating queer folks in a, in a healthy and transparent way. To what extent is that true, do you think? Is it true? Is it, is it, or is there, are there cracks? I think, well, there are cracks, and unfortunately I worry that there's been 
pulling away from it, but I will give credit where credit's due. I think the turning point was around about 2008-ish, well, even 2005-ish. So the ban on gay and lesbian people serving was lifted in 1992. From 92 till 2005, it was tolerance at best. Um, you know, we have a chapter in the book where we talk about there were some people who did have good experiences, but at best it was a period of tolerance. But at the end of 2005, the ADF um, changed its policies to start recognizing same-sex couples. And you see from about 2008 till about, I'd say 2016, give or take, 2016, 2017, more and more vocal support, more support for inclusion, allowing them to march in Mardi Gras, um, setting up committees that, about diversity and inclusion, and actually being really vocal, especially when, when the right-wing press was attacking the Defense Force in defending LGBTIQ, amongst other areas of inclusion. I think a lot of that came to really great leadership in the ADF at the time. Um, I especially would love to give a shout-out to the former Vice Chief of Defense Force, Admiral Ray Griggs, who proved himself to be an amazing ally. Um, so I think it was genuine. I think also it was an interesting time when you had yet again sex abuse scandals and scandals about abuse of women that came out in the ADF. And I think one of the ways the ADF was trying to clean up its image was by promoting its inclusion of LGBTIQ people. That's not to say it wasn't genuine, because having met some of the top brass men, I think it really was genuine, but you sort of had these aligning agendas where it worked. Now, where I think there have been shortcomings and where I worry um, is, well, I'd say two things. One, the ADF is still an absolutely horrific bureaucracy. I mean, I've dealt with bureau- I work at a university, which is bad enough, but the ADF is worse. Um, when, from a lot of the interviews we did with gay and lesbian people, especially trans people, but also gay and lesbian people more recently serving, when things are going fine, they're going fine. When there's a problem, they do not handle it well whether if it's an example of homophobia or transphobia, they do not handle it well. And I don't think that's necessarily a homophobia, transphobia thing. It's the fact that defense does not handle any problems well. But the other thing that is worrying is, especially in the last four years or so, defense has gone a lot quieter on its inclusion agenda. And I think that has to do with the political climate. We've seen the right-wing conservatives in parliament and in the media getting more vocal and attacking defense for its inclusion agenda, attacking defense especially on trans inclusion, because we know that that since the marriage equality debate, trans people have sadly become the punching bag of the right wing. Um, So by doing that, defense, look, it's a tough position because I would love to see them more vocal and love to see them promoting the visibility more. But I also know that at the end of the day, our defense force is at the behest of our civil leaders, which is a good thing. I mean, we don't want them running our lives, and it's a military dictatorship. So they've gone quiet, I think, in part to not attract attention and in part to to, to appease some of those right-wing critics. Um, so, look, I, I put that out there is sort of both worrying. I would love to see them do more and they could do more. But on the same end, I understand it's a difficult climate to do that when you have certain right-wing commentators in the media and in the government, especially from the backbenches, shouting really loudly that they don't like what defense is doing. So the whole debate and the whole rise of the culture of religious freedom within the far-right ranks of the government is really impeding on uh, the rights within the, within the services of, of, of queer folks or indeed how, how the military deals with them. 
I wouldn't use the word, wouldn't say it impedes on their rights per se, but it certainly impedes on defense being more proactive and more visible in its support and in inclusion. And it is worrying the direction it might go. And I do know, we did briefly mention the book, certainly at least one interview participant. I mean, we started this project before the marriage equality vote. At least one person said as soon as that vote happened, all of a sudden the homophobes and transphobes in defense suddenly were very much rearing their heads. Just like we know that vote legitimized homophobia across Australia, it did do that in defense as well. So that's why I think 2017 in many ways was a turning point. So yeah, look, it's not impeding on their rights per se, but it certainly is having ripple effects. And I worry what that could mean in the future, which also means the importance of talking about this and being vigilant to ensure that their rights aren't threatened down the track. Absolutely. It really makes you wonder what will happen if the religious discrimination legislation is passed and the detrimental effects that's going to have on on queer folks in the Australian Defence Forces. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting is there was a high court case um, a few years ago, a certain, and we we talk about this briefly in the book, there was a a person who was an army reservist who had a blog and spouted all sorts of homophobic and transphobic amongst other, Islamophobic amongst other, name the phobe, name the, you know, the, the ism, Espousing that, and that person was stood down and sacked from the defense force because there are strict rules in defense that you're not allowed to engage in political activity or you're not allowed to use not while you're you're sort of in uniform. And that person was using their position in what they were doing, and they were stood down. They challenged it in various forums and went all the way to the high court, including on free speech grounds. And the high court did side with defense. And said, like, no, because defense, there's there's different rules, essentially. This doesn't come under normal employment law. It's more complicated than that. But one of the arguments that person was spouting is that they were Catholic and that their religious freedom was being infringed by defense. That didn't hold up in court then. What will happen if that bill passes, if that sort of thing happens again? Absolutely. Of course, you've also been researching uh, the history of the trans community here in Australia. You've been focusing recently on Victoria. What are some of the things uh, you've I've been focusing on? It. I've been all over the shop, mate. But with Victoria, I mean, one thing that I would love to, to spruik is um, I've written a report on Victoria's transgender history. I wrote it about a year ago, but due to various delays, it's it's finally going to be published. Well, dare I say it, but like it's with the graphic designer now, and Transgender Victoria is going to publish the report next month. We're aiming to have it out before Ida Hobbit, so that's why Victoria's on my head right now. But yes, I've also been looking all over the all over the country in various themes recently as well. So, what are some of the things you discovered about the history of the trans community here in Victoria? Um. So in the report, we talk a little bit about examples of gender crossing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you can't necessarily label those people trans because the word trans didn't exist then. Um, But certainly we can see examples of gender crossing, gender nonconformity, and perhaps the possibility of the imagining of trans possibilities. But then most of the report does focus on the post-Second World War era. So talk a little bit about um, the emergence or the medicalization of trans transgender in Victoria, um, the, including how they became pathologized and defined by psychiatrists and other doctors. But that said, there were also good, there were, you know, there were flip, for almost everything, there was sort of a flip side to everything that could be good and bad. But that includes the origins of the Monash Gender Clinic, um, founded in the end of 75 and seeing its first patients from 76, and the changes at the Monash Clinic over time, 
talk about some of the early trans organizations, including Seahorse, which was set up in Australia in 71, but the specific Victorian branch in 75. There was a small activist group in Victoria called the Victorian Transsexual Coalition that was set up in 1979, and they were lobbying as early as then for anti-discrimination protections and birth certificate reform and other recognition. Talk about some of the support and activist groups set up in the 1990s, like Transgender Liberation and Care which had a few spin-offs, uh, is a nice way of putting it, um, including what's now Transgender Victoria was a spin-off of that group. A bit about the, anti, the fight for anti-discrimination protections, which finally was brought in in 2000. Birth certificate reform, which the first round of it was in 2004, and we know the much more recent round of it was passed in 2019. Some of the stuff around trans and gender diverse young people, um, both through the Royal Children's Hospital Gender Service, but also some of the organizations like Why Gender, which have been founded by trans and gender diverse young people to, to work with them. Um, Oh my God, my brain's a bit full now and exploding. But those are some of the many, 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 many themes that I touch on this report, um, and including some of the pioneers, um, trans people, and allies over the years who've who've been really working to support trans people in Victoria. You must see parallels with the emergence of the trans and gender diverse communities today, and again, lesbian liberation in decades past. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because there are parallels, and I often say, um, it, you know, I'm. Partly cheekily, but partly true that with trans, it was about 20 years behind. Like a lot of what happened with gay and lesbian movements, there was sort of like 20 years later, you see happening similar debates even um, with trans movements and even similar debates. Whereas, you know, in the mid 70s, you had the, the debates between the more reformist gay movements like camp versus the radical groups like gay liberation. You, you get that in the trans organizations in the 1990s. Strangely enough, less so in Victoria, but in New South Wales, in Sydney, you had some really vicious fights going on between the more conservative groups like um, the Transsexual Action Group versus the Transgender Liberation Coalition. Um, So yeah, it is interesting, a lot of the the debates and a lot of the histories, and also where society is at. Like, I think, you know, we think about the gay and lesbian movement, it, you know, it really kicks off in the 1970s in Australia. But... That didn't, acceptance didn't suddenly happen in the 1970s. I often think, I think we often look back as if like the 1990s even was this rosy period where people were accepted, but like actually, nah, like the 1990s were still actually quite a hard time to be openly gay. And it, it, it's in it, the 1990s into the 2000s were maybe sort of a tipping point where you begin to see more acceptance. And I think with trans people, you see that tipping point happening in the teens where there's more acceptance, there's more visibility, but with that acceptance and visibility comes backlash, which sadly we're seeing playing out all over the world and in our parliaments. I mean, thank God for the Victorian government because what's going on in New South Wales right now with that um, anti-trans bill that Mark Latham's pushing is absolutely atrocious. Um, but, I mean, again, the flip side of that, why are they being so atrocious? Well, because there's more acceptance. That doesn't make it any easier when they're being atrocious, but it's that thing of, you know, they're shouting loudly because attitudes have changed and they're trying to stop history, and they're going to lose. Yeah, Latham's bill really is trying to erase young trans people and and teachers from from you know existence. You know, wants to erase their gender identity. And completely same itself. thing that people 
people were doing to gay and lesbian teachers and students in the 1970s, 80s, I guess less so by the 90s, but the same arguments as well. Won't someone think of the children? Same arguments used against homosexuality in the 70s and 80s, now being used against trans people in the teens. So it is remarkable, the same arguments, the same demonization, and also all the more reason that LGB people such as myself, we should be standing strong vocally as allies supporting our trans friends and family because of what, you know, this is the same crap that we had to put up with, and now they have to put up with it. We shouldn't be fighting them. We shouldn't be demonizing them. We should be standing with them and standing loud. Indeed. Sorry, I got a little angry and passionate there. But no, I love know, it. We love it at 3CR. It is indeed. And um, how do you think history is going to look back on this on this era with people like Mark Latham trying to, to push legislation, such as his uh, parental rights education bill in New South Wales? How are we going to look back look, on this in 10 years? Oh, look, historians shouldn't predict the future, but I truly, truly hope that it might take longer than 10 years, but I truly hope it will be looked back in shame. I think the closest parallel is Section, what was it, 58? Whatever that one that Thatcher passed, that horrible thing. Um, you know, it's it's basically the same bill, but around trans stuff. And that, unfortunately, passed in the UK, and it took them almost 20 years to, to wipe it from the slate. I'm cautiously optimistic this won't pass in New South Wales, and we won't take 20 years to undo it. But you know, that said, I, you know, I, I don't know. Historians shouldn't predict the future, but I, I do like to hope that in 10, 20 years' time, people will look back going, God, that was awful what that person did. Absolutely. I mean, they're a minor party, One Nation, in, in New South Wales. Latham's an upper house MP. All it would take to kill the bills is for, for Gladys to um, say the New South Wales government does not support it, and she hasn't. And look, I think it's shameful that Gladys is letting Latham have his time in the spotlight, but, but I, I cautiously am optimistic the Liberals and Nationals won't support it. But they're letting him have this in the spotlight because they're going to need his votes for various things because of the politics of the upper house. And it's shameful, again, that trans people get thrown under the bus and are the punching bag um, so that other people or other issues can get their way. But I do like to hope that Gladys and the Liberals and Nationals won't support the bill when the time comes. But you're right, she could shut this down now, but she's not because she knows she needs Latham's vote for other various issues. Noah Reisman, we're out of time. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Congratulations on your book with Shirlene Robinson, Pride in Defence. Uh, it's been great chatting. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Dr Noel Reisman there. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. Taking us out is our Midnight Oil, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. The people are appeased Long live the rest.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs>